Welcome to Ana Conversations with Myanmar. If you'd like to add your voice to the conversation here at Ana, please reach out to us through any of our social media platforms or you can email us directly. This conversation features Mong Zarni, an exiled Myanmar scholar, human rights activist and co-founder of Forces of Renewal for Southeast Asia. Mong Zarni has been involved in Myanmar's political affairs for over 30 years. He founded and led the Free Burma Coalition, pioneered the human rights movement and spearheaded an international boycott against Myanmar's military dictatorship from 1995 to 2004. He is co-author of the pioneering study, The Slow-Burning Genocide of Myanmar's Rohingyas. Throughout his career, Mong Zarni has combined honest scholarship with passionate activism in the fight against state-sponsored racism against religious and ethnic minorities. But his activism and refusal to be silenced has sometimes come at a great personal cost. He was famously denounced as the enemy of the state for his very open and public opposition to the Myanmar genocide. Here he speaks very openly, candidly and honestly about his life's work and the current political situation in his country, Myanmar. Let's start the conversation. Hello, Mong Sarini. Can you hear us? Hello. Oh, hello. Hi. I can Sorry. hear you. <laughs> yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Mong Sarini, you're a well-known figure in Myanmar. I'm infamous. <laughs> infamous, yeah. And that's the thing, you know, it's funny because we were, we were talking about wanting to speak with you and, you know, a lot of people were like, ooh, you know, that's a controversial person to talk to. But very few people could tell us why you were so controversial. You know, people just know your name. They think they know that you're controversial, but no one really knows that much, actually, of why they have that feeling or why you're controversial. But you have been speaking out on human rights for a long time in Myanmar, and that's never going to make anybody popular but tell us just a little bit, I mean, just to get a sense of, for people who maybe don't know, I mean, most people, I guess, in Myanmar will know, but for those who don't know your story, maybe just a little bit about your earlier years and leaving Myanmar. Well, I mean, I have to start with my own personal and family and, and political background. I'm not going to be long and winded about this, but I spent um, the first uh, 24, 25 or 24 years of my life under this horrendous dictatorship. But I was also from an extended military family. And some of my relatives you know, rose within the armed forces. One was the mentor or commander of a dictator, Than Shui, And he married Than Shui and his wife. This was in the 1950s. And he was also the deputy commander in Rakhine State when Rohingyas were recognized as our own people and full citizens. So he was, in that respect, uh, he was a good person. He was not part of this uh, genocidal gang. And also my old uncle, my mom's younger brother, was um, near Wayne's VIP pilot for about 20, 25 years until the old dictator was uh, put under house arrest. And so I grew up, you know, essentially admiring this institution, you know. But I I was not an exception because uh, many Burmese I should say even Karans and Chan and others who felt that, that in the 1960s, 70s, and even towards the uh, closing years of the dictatorship, the armed forces were the only venue for essentially um, social mobility. 
And, you know, if you wanted to be somebody in Burma, you needed to associate with the military either as, uh, you know, officer or uh, work with them to make money. And so I was less interested in making money than being a, a nationalist and being a patriot who wanted to join and become an officer because I've got the family members, cousins and uncles and great uncles, many of whom served in this institution since it was founded. And also we knew, I don't know personally, someone was dead by then, but some of my relatives were close friends of the army's founder, Aung San. So we would get up four in the morning to go and watch the Armed Forces Day or like resistance, fascist resistance day parade as children. And, and then I was admitted to officer training school at the age of 16. And my father said, if you join the army, I will disown you. And so, you know, I, I had to cave in to his pressure as, as a Burmese would do. But, you know, parents held enormous sways over children's life choices. And so, you know, and then I had the right uh, problem with the um, with the system, the Ministry of Education. Um, this was back in 1981, 82. And, you know, when my early dream of becoming an army officer or a pilot or you know, whatever I aspired to be was ended with my, my dad putting his foot down and saying, no, no, don't, don't go or you're no longer my son. A very firm line. I lost, essentially, I, I was lost, and I, okay, what do I want to be now? <laughs> all my childhood and teenage year, all I wanted to be was an uh, army officer and serve in the armed forces. Right? That was considered prestigious in those days, and I was infested with this uh, militaristic uh, patriotism, right? And the ultimate, you know, most honorable profession in a country like Burma was served in the armed forces, right? That was the dream, right? So anyway, when that was ended, I decided that I would study English language and literature because that was something I was passionate about beyond wanting to be a military person. But I was also concerned about making a career from a family without a lot of money. You know, we were well connected uh, culturally and politically. Uh, we're from an old Mandalay family going back to, to the courts. But we didn't have the wealth, the capital to start business. And I was not also a, a business minded. And so I thought that, okay, I would um, study English and then maybe become a, a university academic. But in those days, to study English literature and linguistics, they calculate the cumulative English scores for three years, not just one year. The, um, the high school matriculation, 10th standard, and first and second year, or what was then called regional colleges. You know, the universities were broken up for political strategic reasons and to keep a campuses small so that the security forces could move in and and any protest in, in smaller campuses as opposed to Rangoon or Mandalay, big universities. So essentially, I had one of the highest cumulative scores of all students who applied to major in English. But I was officially admitted to Veterinary Science Institute in Yangon. But why veterinary? Because I thought that you know, if I were a veterinary scientist or a doctor, then at least I could make a living as a career without needing capital to start a business, right? But my heart wasn't in it, so I dropped out of veterinary school 
and submitted an application to transfer from veterinary institute in Yangon to major English literature in Mandalay. I had the second highest score of all English students in Mandalay University in my year. And then the Ministry of Education turned it down. <laughs> so I lost one year. They informed me that I was not allowed to study English literature, although I was uh, the most qualified Burmese student there. They informed me like only two months before. So I couldn't go back to veterinary school either. So I was essentially a turning point from somebody who grew up wanting to be a military officer to feeling extremely alienated by the very system that I admired. So it was personal. And then, of course, like, you know, the next year, I was sent to study chemistry and physics. And so, you know, I, I did okay. But, you know, these were not in the part of my wildest imagination. I didn't want to be a scientist. And plus, we didn't have a proper science department. And we were memorizing some of the physics experiments. I mean, experiments, like you had to go to the lab and do things, right? So I started working towards a new goal of leaving the country, you know, four or five years before the uprising started. When the uprising took place in 1988, uh, or when things were brewing, you know, brewing in 1987, and then it took about a year for the uprising to explode as a proper nationwide uprising. So by then, I was planning to leave and I was working as a tour guide. You know, like befriending Americans and English and Scots and whoever, telling them that I was not interested to go to US or UK or anywhere to make money or to be something else. I said I wanted to continue my study and you know, this system failed me that I could not study what I wanted to study. So I want to leave this country. So finally, a couple of American families, the academics and, you know, some corporate CEOs decided that I was essentially genuine. And I deserved their support. And they sponsored me to go to the U.S. to start my university education. So I knew that the uprising was about to happen. So I left the country choosing not to stay on and not to get involved. This was my choice. If I stay on, I would have been involved. But I left because my priority was to get my own education. So I left a month before the 1988 uprising. <laughs> I was at the time quietly engaged with my girlfriend in Shan State. But then my ambition, you know, got the better of me and I left her and I went to California. And this was July 1988 and then within a month the, the country exploded. And so in those days, I was basically raising a little bit of money, like selling like brownies on campus, sending like a couple hundred dollars to student groups, refugee groups in Thailand. And once I was there, I felt guilty because I was sitting in one of the best libraries or universities in the world. And, you know, my peers were getting short on the streets. And so you talk about me speaking out on human rights. And it started with 88, you know, when your peers were both men and women and university students were protesting to change the political system and risking their lives. And you're, you know, I was working to support myself. I received the uh, non-resident tuition fellowship, meaning that I did not have to pay a penny to the university. But as long as I could feed myself and uh, you know do well in school, I could get an education. That's what I did. So then there were um, older generation of Burmese dissidents 
1962, you know, when they took over the country, the university student protested some, took up arms with the communists and ethnic groups, and uh, many of them, after their endeavors failed, a, a small number migrated to North America and also to, to Europe. And so I got connected with some of the older generations from 1962, 1975, what's called uh, Uthan Uprising. And uh, the, through them, uh, basically, I got inducted into exile politics. And I was one of the very few Burmese students in those days in, in the U.S. because under a socialist regime, it was extremely difficult to get a passport. You've got to forge documents to say that uh, you will be sending a 10% of whatever you earn, you know, to the Burmese embassy, yeah? uh, because the, the, the socialist system was cash-strapped, so they did not allow any to leave the country, uh, unless that they are sailors, merchant marine sailors. But then, like, the uh, foreign exchange bank would require these sailors to basically give them 10, 20% of their taxes to get foreign currency. And then I was one of those people, you know, I fought for employment document and claiming that I would be working in a, you know, orchard in California and that I would pay legislature a hundred dollar a month to the embassy. Yeah. But I was scrubbing toilets and, you know, like working at, at gas stations to pay my own food and other bills. You know, there are multiple sources of personal resentment, you know, in addition to the political awareness of what was happening that really put me on the path of you know, basically criticizing the regime and also raising the issue of the human rights and, uh, and democracy. And so that was the beginning of my activism. I was never active in Burma politically because, you know, but part of the reason was that, you know, you could be active in Burma, even in, you know, non-uprising times, if you are connected with the uh, communist cells in those days, that there were Burmese Communist Party, or if your university years coincided with waves of uh, student uprising. We didn't have student government. We didn't have student organization. The university students were allowed to easily access all kinds of drugs. I mean, some of us were smoking heroin in, in chemistry lecture room, you know, like, because we didn't have air-conditioned lecture rooms. And, we had ceiling fans, like old-fashioned. So you, if you sit next to the window, you stick your head out and then smoke heroin while the chemistry teacher was like, giving a lecture. So my point was that the political activism, you know, even bathroom literature, you know, you write something like that down with dictatorship, you know, with a pencil or while you're sitting on the toilet. <laughs> and then the military intelligence would try to comb through who might have done it, yeah? And so when I was in university, this was like 1980 to 84, 85, you know, there was absolutely zero. There was no political activism on campus. And most of us were either drunk or stoned or high. You know, we scraped through the four years of uh, university, like, you know, doing drugs. And then part of it was that many of us felt that our youth had uh, no future, no hope under this dictatorship at the time. By 1980s, Things were very clear, you know, the system was failing the society. So I wasn't involved there, but like anyone from Burmese families, we were exposed to uh, different generations of dissidents. You know, some of our lecturers uh, 
uh, were former political prisoners or uh, whatnot who drop out, got jailed, then like returned and, and finished their degrees and they became tutors and demonstrators in different departments. So we learn about the regime. And so the awareness was always there. So there were two parts to it. You know, my earlier life aspiring to be a militarist patriot and then from my uh, rejection to study English onward, you know, some much more acutely politically conscious young Burmese. And then that, you know, that, that became open or I was able to express myself politically openly because I didn't have the immediate fear or threat of being arrested. So I cut my political teeth in California with other older generation dissidents who mentor me on organizing and whatnot. So sorry, I ended up being long. <laughs> no, it, it, it's good for us to get, get that context as well. I know that you are very open and you come across as quite honest and you do say when you've got things wrong or when you were ill-informed or maybe you didn't understand something in the past, but you've been very open about you kind of engaging with the military for a short period of time where, like many people, I think at that time, did go back and did try to work with them. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think the, uh, I've tried this, you know, d- different things, including, you know, being uh, confidentially assigned to look for essentially um, arms and uh, financial support for the multi-ethnic armed resistance. You know, this was uh, back in 2003, you know, right after Aung San Suu Kyi and convoy came up under ambush uh, in a place called Depay, that she escaped and she was jailed. You know, she was kept insane for a while. So I was leading the um, consumer boycott campaign. Like, you know, uh, anti-apartheid style, you know, like consumer boycott, boycott Pepsi, boycott premier oil in UK, you know, the Heineken beer, all kinds of things. But mostly that, that was in the US. And then through my activism, I came to know some of the um, brutally honest US uh, senior officials in the State Department who basically said, you know, don't look to us or to the West for, for your liberation. I mean, we're not going to do anything substantial. We're not going to do the heavy lifting. If you want to free, like, you need to find your own solution, right? And one in particular, you know, the, the Deputy Assistant Secretary of State, by the name of Matthew Daly, you know, he was an honest, ethical diplomat, uh, a rare breed, sort of like maverick. He said, you know, that he fought in Korea and he was ex-service personnel. And he said that in 1956, you know, we made false promises to the Hungarians when they rose up and uh, we did nothing. This was under Eisenhower, the presidency. And, you know, the, the Americans dangled the solidarity and support and, you know, and then like uh, when the Hungarian students rose up in 1956, you know, Hungarian spring, you know, the Soviets were not going to have any of it. So they sent the tanks and troops and, and 30,000 Hungarians were killed, 30,000 during the crackdown. And so he said, one-on-one, face-to-face, say, look, you know, I cannot stand behind my government's unethical policy, giving people false promises, and then you risk your lives and we you know, we look the other way. And, and so, so that was an awakening. You know, I was lobbying the U.S. Congress, White House, you know, like organizing uh, boycotts. And then I felt that, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi 
I was supporting her for 15 years. I was a foot soldier. You know, I suspended sanction. When people say they support Aung San Suu Kyi, what that means is they suspend their reasoning power. <laughs> because, like, you know, they look to, and I did too. You know, I was one of them. And I was like, okay, all right, the lady had the solution. You know, she was protected world leaders. And, you know, she was this um, um, educated, Western educated person. You know, she knows that she's a, she is the daughter of the army's founder. The army will find a way to accommodate her. The, all that, right? And none of that was true. And, and then it became very apparent to me. Every time she was put under house arrest, we were like rudderless, you know, that we were like, you know, passengers on a rudderless boat. You know, we could be going in a, in a circular way and uh, getting nowhere. And then I was also beginning to see that uh, this was 2003-2004. You know, she was telling the press that she had nothing to do with the sanction, whereas in fact she was in confidential communications with some of the most powerful lawmakers in Washington, D.C. What she wanted from the U.S. policy down to the nitty-gritty. And at the same time, she was <laughs> she was being like, you know, a forked tongue. And I thought she was... You know, like her father, straightforward, honest, and, you know, she would tell the public what she was doing. She would tell the world what she thinks. But no, she was playing politics, and, and we are in a revolutionary situation, you know, against this regime. We were not doing electoral politics. And so my conclusion as early as 2003-2004, yeah, that the United States was not going to do the heavy lifting, and second, the Suji was not an honest leader. And so those two things that, you know, made me snap out of this, you know, la-la land of opposition activists who thought that the United States sanctions or United States was going to send the Seventh Fleet or Suchi was going to lead them or deliver them from their misery. And so I, I broke ranks. And at the time, the military saw me as someone that um, they could instrumentalize or use yeah, to bust these sanctions and also to basically uh, weaken or like break the uh, international sanctions movement because I was one of the uh, coastal boys of the Burma sanction and so far as grassroots activism. But, uh, you know, I actually gave uh, some of the, the military generals who presented to me as reformists. They used this uh, China discourse, right? Most Burmese were essentially anti-China because we have always been afraid of China. It's so big. <laughs> they could take uh, the country in no time. And so when these military uh, intelligence officials and their bosses approached a number of dissidents, uh, not just me, yeah, but I was one of the, one of their major targets for basically outreach. And they said, uh, you know, like, look, you know, the country is going down the drain and we are very much concerned about China's penetration. But the only way we could counterbalance China was if we could normalize relations with the United States in particular and the West in general. Will you help? And so the, I had no objection to trying to balance China's expanding influence in Burma, economically, politically, and otherwise. And so I said, oh, all right, you know, we'll bury the hedges. We work together. And I was doing that in good faith. And I was not alone. You know, there were a number of uh, different generation distance. I consulted with them. And then I consulted with, you know, the State Department official. And I was at the time a political refugee, right? 
and the traveling on refugee documents. So the State Department uh, unofficially backed me up and said, if you're going to look for your own Burmese solutions with the, the camp that at the time was known as reformist, but, you know, it, it also proved to be incorrect. Yeah. The, the, the military was just manipulating anything that comes into contact with them. And so I say I fell for that, um, you know, uh, we were all brothers and we want to reform the country. You know, let's work together, right? But I held my part of the deal, which was uh, trying to raise the issue of China's encroachments on Burmese sovereignty and also the emergence of or the existence of elements within the army that would work across political lines. And I started to promote that line. And then so that was the reason I became controversial, because at the time, if you do anything that Aung San Suu Kyi did not endorse, or, or if you did not enjoy Suu Kyi's support, you were not to talk to the military. And she was the only that will communicate with the military and the rest must get in line and rally behind her. And so I broke that tradition. So when the pressure, the public outcry against my push for working with what I thought was a reformist became too loud. Some of my old colleagues said that consented to me talking to the military. And then, you know, obviously you could not engage with the state actor as an activist, you had nothing. You had no power, no guns, no people, you know. And so you needed to have some other state actors support. And I was rarely uh, support from the Philippines, like, you know, ex-president uh, Fidel Ramos, who used to be, like, friends with uh, Tan Shui and other generals. And uh, they were like, okay, if you wanted to change a military control system, you need to look at successful places like Philippines. You don't, you, don't, you don't go to Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International for advice for this kind of thing, right? Uh, this is not a human rights issue. This is a strategic issue. So I had people like, you know, Tuxin office, yeah? and Tuxin was very close to Kenyon, who I was dealing with, in, you know, because Kenyon presented himself as reformers. Also, because of that reputation, you know, the other infantry camp sacked him and then dismantled the entire military intelligence network in 2004. And then so, you know, we were to have these uh, meetings in Bangkok with the support of Thaksin government. Yeah? Uh, they wouldn't get involved. They would provide uh, facilities. They would provide security. And then, you know, the so-called reformist camp would send a small team of negotiators, and I would organize our side, the exiles with names, a reputation, and then we would figure out, you know, how best to find ways to work together while Suchi's under house arrest and the military wasn't talking to, to her at the time. And so the NLD was issuing public notices that this initiative to communicate with the so-called reformists in the army had nothing to do with them and that the United States and they continued to support the U.S. Um, sanctions and what I was doing had no NLD backing. I didn't claim NLD backing either. So I went to some of the um, people from the KNU were also involved. But what happened was that the military, you know, the guys that I was in communication with and working with, they were dishonest. And they went for the short-term gain of, you know, basically bagging me in their camp 
rather than treating me as a partner and working together, you know, to renormalize relations with the West, particularly Washington and European Union. And so they started to spread the news that I was their man. The minute I stopped supporting Aung San Suu Kyi after 15 years of following her blindly, I was my own man for no one else's. And so that was how the controversy started. And the people started, you know, believing in these rumors that I was working for the military. And I was working with them. But that's radically different from working for them. But I finally returned to Burma because, you know, that was a choice I made to work with the military. So I had no other choice to stick with it or drop out of Burmese politics, right? And then, so I gave them the benefit of that. I, I continued this path for the next, like, uh, three or four years until the Nargis happened. Before Nargis, as, as you will remember, 2007, there were months uprisings that from revolt. And what I was doing was trying to, like, tell the reformists at the time. After Kenyon fell, there was a new generation of military officers who were my contemporaries. You know, we were on first-name basis. You know, I don't call them generals or this or that. And so, you know, I, I was telling them, this is an opportunity to bring back Aung San Suu Kyi into the dialogue process and use her as a national figure who could reconcile, you know, help reconcile between the uh, society and the military. You know, later she assumed that role. I guess, like, you know, my, my mistake was that I took you know, the too great risk uh, to my reputation. And secondly, I misjudged the timing. And so I paid the price, you know, being betrayed in the most uh, negative lot. So that was my early engagement. And then when the Danchwe regime brought the emergency relief assistance for the cyclone victim, this was 2008, um, May, and I decided that there was absolutely no hope of, you know, uh, working with this group because, you know, I said, you know, like, look, you know, they're shooting protests on the streets. That, you know, it's not cool, but it's understandable. It's not acceptable. But, you know, when the regime felt threatened, that popular uprising might overthrow them, then they react you know, violently. Now, that's not acceptable. But it could be understood without defending it. But when a regime brought um, emergency relief assistance, including clean drinking water, you know, in the Delta, where all the waterways uh, were, you know, littered with decomposing corpses and uh, animal carcasses, right? And so people were drinking that water. I said, you know, what are you doing? Like, they're our own people. They're not rising up. They're victims of the cycle by the hundreds of thousands. And you're blocking their, their response with rather callers. Well, we don't need international assistance. Like, you know, we could just distribute Chinese noodles and styrofoam packages. <laughs> And, and then I started speaking out against the military. It wasn't complicated. A, people didn't have the context that I was operating in, and uh, people did not specifically know what I was doing. And so that gave rise to, you know, all kinds of rumors. And so that that was, um, you know, controversial. Yeah, I mean, I, I was the, the most controversial figure um, in those days. Um, so I think I understand what you're saying in terms of the Saffron Revolution. While you're not saying it was okay, you, you could kind of maybe reason that in your mind that why that might be happening or that's the reaction. But 
I guess, to human rights abuses when you're not helping victims of a natural disaster, maybe change something in your mind when you realize that these people don't care about anybody. Exactly. Is, is, is that that moment? Exactly. And also, like, you know, in 2004, end of 2004, they sacked uh, Kim Jong-un, who was their number one troubleshooter, head of intelligence, holding the position of prime minister. He was, his wings were clipped, and he was asked to relinquish the head of intelligence position, which was his power base, and stay on as a nominal prime minister and do the hardline or so-called hardliners bidding. He refused to relinquish his power base. And so that was how he got sacked. Yeah. And his uh, intelligence network was uh, dismantled. And then like the leadership that replaced Kenyon and we form a new intelligence network with uh, essentially my contemporaries and you know, the, the guys who graduated from the military academies and schools around 1984, 85. You know, I, I basically, I set up my own benchmarks and I told them there are three things that need to be done in order to move the uh, Burmese politics forward and end the deadlock. One was to, if they're not prepared to talk with Aung San Suu Kyi, at the time they're not talking, and this was like 2005, and I said like, then you need to talk to the 88 generation leaders and that had public respect and support, to, you know, so start a registration program among ourselves. And second, relax the internet restriction. In, in those days, like a SIM card would cost about $500. Yeah. This was 2005 and the internet was very slow. Yeah. I said, by restricting the internet, we are depriving the new generation of any opportunity to reconnect with the world through the internet. They want ask me, can you put your suggestion in writing? We will. I get it to the top leadership. And so, you know, that the second was ease the internet restriction and allow the new generation to serve the web. And then the third one was like, okay, if you don't trust the Westerners and white people, well, then we've got enough Western trained technocrats in Yangon and other places and form an economic advisory council and start addressing the economic problems, or the problems of the economy, right? And none of the suggestions I made was either taken seriously or acted upon. And on top of that came the shooting of monks, a second, and you know, the final straw was uh, blocking even drinking water or drinkable water to the cyclone victims in the Delta. And we lost that uh, close to 200,000 or something around that ballpark figure. And that was when I said, this regime but this leadership cannot be reformed. And I was just basically risking my name for no reason. And so I pulled back completely, 100%. And I, since then, I had absolutely no communication or contact with anyone in the military. Just going back to how you began your story and you were talking about your education and how you ended up leaving the country for education. I was talking to my friend before we did this call, and she's a teacher. She teaches English to Burmese students. Um, she's Burmese herself, and she was asking my advice on how they could get out. What what qualifications should they do? Because the government schools are not opening, and they're not getting access to any education. And it seems to me, 20 years, and it's the exact same situation. You're talking about a natural disaster. Now they have COVID. We're hearing stories of crowds queuing for oxygen being shot at by military personnel and oxygen being prevented to get to the people. 
it seems like what you've just said, that it couldn't be reformed, has just been proven. The exact same things are happening. It's just so atrocious and hard to get your head around from an outside perspective that any kind of leader of a government would want to use something like a pandemic to control the people. It's just devastating to see. They can't be reformed. So it's the only answer now. Violence is the only way forward, is the only way to see rid... No, I think think the problem is one of the biggest problems of Burmese politics is... uh, Aung San Suu Kyi's personalization of politics. And uh, she looks at Burma only through personal eyes, particularly the military. You know, we are dealing with the institution, with the fascist residue. And even today, I bet the military leaders, rank and file may be a different matter, do not think that they are doing something bad. Yeah, That is one fundamental problem. Yeah, they think that um, this is the only way to keep the country together. They are the guardians of the nation and sovereignty, territorial integrity. And if they're not there with 22 armed organizations, the country is going to disintegrate like the Balkans. So that is the view that they cannot, you know, it, it is like the Nazis that the Nazis consider themselves German patriots. <laughs> they love Germany. That's why they destroyed. It. You see what I mean? You know, this is a twisted logic, you know. And so for them, they are the ultimate patriot. All they're doing was in defense of the sovereignty for the people. And if people did not listen to them, then those people must be eliminated because <laughs> the people that don't listen stand in the way of you know, saving the nation, right? The number one culprit or the country's woes, the military is responsible. They've been in power since 1962, nonstop, yeah? And Suchi never really had 100% reign, you know, over the government. But where she fails, she continues to see this institution as her father's army, yeah? But her father was... First and foremost, not a military man. Our father was an anti-British imperialist organizer. That became, out of circumstances, a military general, yeah, a proxy for the fascists. But as soon as he realized that fascism was worse than the colonialism, or if we could like, create a hierarchy of evil, yeah, our father decided to turn an army into an instrument of democratic politics, not the other way around. And so what the army is doing is using electoral politics as an instrument of its power, making itself legitimate. So this institution is no longer her father's institution. Her father was head of the Burma army for less than than four or five years. And when he died, a civilian. He did not die a general. You know, people kept calling him General Aung San, you know, but he he was already a civilian, yeah, and Mountbatten offered him a choice of staying in on as the head of the reformed um, post-World War II National Army or become a national leader. And so he relinquished the title of general and his command of the army, and then he became a politician. And so she kept romanticizing the father she remembered as the general. 
And then she kept calling the Burmese generals, my father's sons. You know, these are the guys, you know, her father would himself kill for their atrocious behavior. And Aung was rewriting code of conduct for the Burmese army because the early Burmese independence army was as bad as these guys. You know, they were looting. They were like taking everything. You know, this was uh, during the wartime, right? So the men with arms would take anything they want. There's no rule of law, no proper administration. So her father was extremely angry at the conduct of the National Liberation Force that he thought would act honorably. And so her approach to the army was not institutional. It was personal and emotional. That was one of the major major stumbling blocks for the entire democratization process. And on the other hand, the military generals, you remove their line today, the next guy will act exactly the same. You know, Nguyen did the same in 1962, you know, killing like over 300 students at Rangoon University. They're like, you know, all the successive military leaders who are at the center of the power. They behave exactly the same thing. They reason exactly the same thing. You know, basically, they're like cookie-cutter patriots with fascist streak in them. And you know, for them, is the nation without the people is preferable to defiant people within the nation. Yeah. So, but I, I think I heard chapters closed. And in terms of the regime's irreformability, what really makes me, or what had made me angry over these years was that here I was, somebody who wanted to be a military officer, who felt very comfortable among the officers. I could speak their language, like a language of racism, nationalism, all kinds of, you know, dirt. I could speak like them. That's why I could talk to them, and they could talk to me. And then so when I had firsthand experience dealing with them in very intimate ways, I became controversial again because I was a party pooper. <laughs> the world was like, whoa, this was like extraordinary democratic transition. Look at how these like murderous generals all of a sudden were like holding the hands with Obama and the lines. And uh, Obama himself said this was an extraordinary transition and other rogue states like North Korea or Iran should emulate, right? So I was like screaming, fall. I knew these guys. Now, you know, we call each other brothers and they are not going to reform. They're not going to change. They are manipulating anything that comes into contact with them, including myself. Look, in the, in the grand scheme of things, I was just a small potato. But, you know, they could manipulate Suchi. When Suchi was the first asked to come and meet with Thainsing after he came to power as prime minister or president, yeah, I think this was like 2011. They manipulated down to the very detail. There was absolutely nothing on the wall where Suji met with Tenzin. Only gold-framed picture of Aung San on the wall. Yeah. As soon as she stepped into that room, that was what she noticed. Well, that was my daddy, right? And so these guys must not be bad because they're still deferential towards my father. Right? So that's how they manipulate, right? And, you know, it is like giving a woman on a date a red rose. You know what I mean? That her heart just met in the presence of the military. That's why 
she told that Desert Island Disc program, yeah, I love them unconditionally. That's what she said. And, you know, the Kirsty Young, who was the host, said, you love them even when they are accused of condoning rape and mass murdering like Muslims and others. You still love them. You express affection. And then she said, you know, if you love somebody, you know, you love them, you know, not because of, but in spite of who they are. You know what I mean? See, this is the point that people don't understand. Politics for her is continuing her father's legacy. It's a personal business. Yeah? I mean, I don't mean to say she was a greedy person. Not in that sense, monetarily. But she thinks that politics is an extension of her father and herself. And she is carrying on daddy's legacy. That when she collaborated with the fascist-like regime, that in her head, you know, despite the global condemnation, she would reason that my father worked with Japanese fascists in pursuit of the singular goal of national liberation from the British rule. You see what I mean? Because that's a perfect logic. Think about it. If you grew up not really knowing your father, because he died when she was only like 18 or 20 months old, yeah? So this is the legacy of Aung San Suu Kyi, yeah? 30 odd years, she thought that she could charm her father's sons into accepting reforms. But from the perspective of the military, the military is a bureaucratic organization with its own organizational interests and imperatives. And then you overlay that with the personal greed of individual generals. The Burmese generals are millionaires. You know, when I was growing up, when an army officer retired or forced to retire you know, with the rank of, uh, say, like regional commander, yeah, it's basically uh, these are the lords, the lords of regions, right? They could not openly build a house. You know, when they would retire or forced to retire, they need to vacate the state-provided mansions. But many of them quietly save money through bribes and whatnot, or like, you know, sell permits of corrugated iron or building materials. If a house requires, let's just say, you know, only 200 sheets, they would apply for 600 sheets and then sell 400 eh, and use the money to buy other materials or pay for the uh, mason or carpenters or buildings. In 1980s, if an army officer retired and built a house, he would get into trouble, right? And the level of corruption at the time was, I mean, like basically peanuts. But people take bribes just to feed their families. Now, officers take bribes to make themselves millionaires. You see what I mean? So I think like, you know, that the army is not just simply a repressive organization. Army is a record. And then they're not going to give up their millions for the sake of democracy or human rights or for the country, right? And so I think that, Ruth, that your point about like, you know, violence, I cannot see how this is going to end in any peaceful way or in any type of democracy or federalism. You know, we are spiraling down. And people, people don't realize this. This situation can go on for a long time. 
and with no future. So this is the this is the country. I mean, my analogy would be, this is a country limping. Yeah, we are not going to get up and walk, let alone run. We are limping and limping along, dragging our butts. I I don't know. Like I am not a pacifist, and I I would support armed rebel. I do support armed revolution, but the problem is, armed revolution. Has to end in a zero-sum result, you know, whether it's French or the English Revolution with Cromwell or the the Bolshevik Revolution. If zero-sum is not possible, the society is going to be destroyed. And if zero-sum results conceivable, then there is a chance of rebuilding. You know, I mean, Europe was rebuilt out of the ashes of World War Two because the Hitler is gone, but. And the Nazis were completely finished. But in our situation, I don't see a zero-sum outcome, clear-cut outcome, right? And the military cannot crush the society that refuses to bow down. And from my perspective, our opposition cannot also crush the military for the simple reason: it's a massive organization backed by China and Russia, and China will not allow. The collapse of Burma as a state, the same way Russia does not allow Assad to fall in Syria, because、uh, you know Putin maintains naval base there. It's Putin's strategic ally, and so you know the Burmese military are in a far better situation than Syria. Assad has to contend with Israel right next door, but the Burmese military has absolutely. No external threat as such, and all the neighboring countries are in favor of military going on in power. Look at Asia. You know, Malaysia is collapsing as a democracy. There's only one country within Asia, Indonesia, that is functionally democratic. The rest are absolute monarchy. You know, neo-totalitarian or authoritarian states. Bangladesh doesn't even issue a statement saying that they support democratization. They have a singular purpose, like getting rid of Rohingyas from their soil. And India, another like Asian giant, India is afraid that you know if they make any pro-democracy statement, China will gain upper hand vis-a-vis the military. Right. So we are surrounded by, we are in the sea of non-supportive states. And on top of Russia supplying arms, so so this is a very very bleak scenario I am painting, and I, I fear that this is also the most accurate picture. We are not seeing light at the end of the tunnel. I think Mongzani, two things that seem different to me looking at it this time is this time the military's public image is destroyed in the country. And I don't think they will recover from that. So this idea of the guardians or the savior is gone. I mean, you know, and they've held that for a long time. And we have the NUG, which I know you had a very short-lived political career with,、um, which, <laughs> which we'll, we'll come to. But、um, their statements seem to be showing that they have broken away from Aung San Suu Kyi's policies in many ways. So we're seeing two big changes: the the reputation of the military is probably irreparably damaged in the country amongst the majority Buddhist people, and then we see this break in NUG from Aung San Suu Kyi's kind of accommodating the military. So are these hopeful things? 
Well, I mean, these are positive developments. You know, the ideological hold on the Burmese nationalist mind is gone. And so there's no possibility of the Burmese public re-embracing this institution. Not just me online, yeah? He can turn himself in tomorrow. But the, the Burmese know. And what the Burmese have seen is not men online sniping. What they have seen is soldiers snipering and treating women so badly and then torturing people, all that stuff. You know, like summary executions and broad daylight. And so there's absolutely no questions about the glue coming off. You know, the glue between the, the nationalist, you know, majoritarian Burmese society and the racist and majoritarian Armed forces. There's no more glue. You know, I, I was one of the first. Yeah, I was the first to, to scream at that. You know, we must call this regime terrorists. And they are no longer a national armed forces. They are, for all intents and purposes, a terrorist organization, no different from ISIS or Taliban or Boko Haram. Right? I mean, look at their behavior. Yeah? It's not not what they say to the world or to the public. In terms of NUG, it's actually quite a lot complex. I think. One of my beefs with the NUG is not their response to push back against me. Uh, I wasn't going to be like anything significant. I was going to just help uh, Sasa, uh, you know. So they have not impressed key elements within the broad anti-military forces, especially ethnic armed organizations, right? Secondly, they continue to be viewed as basically you know, old guards from the NLD who would, at the drop of a hat, get in line behind Aung San Suu Kyi if ever she is ever allowed to be in politics again. I think the other one is that the NUG, from the minority's perspective, is still the Burmese center and Burmese manipulative entity. I know there's a lot of, like, uh, statements coming from State Department you know, like European Union, and you know, all the statements coming from the West mention NUG in their statements, backing them, and also CRPH. So NUG is, there are two entities. NUG, which is presented as representing also ethnic nationalities or minorities, and then CRPH, that's a democratic base, right? So these two entities are seen as twins, or the leadership of twins, right? you know, on the basis of democratic election and on the basis of ethnic makeup of the country. So in principle, yes, this is hopeful. But on the ground, there are serious, serious issues that have not been reconciled. And then the other one is capacity. It's actual capacity to actually lead. Because, you know, anything that happens in the country, NUG would say like, you know, oh, yeah, like, you know, we're doing this, we're doing that. No, no, no. What I see is a situation not dissimilar to, let's say, 1890s. But the British moved in in 1885. The king surrendered, and there were no more political center. But the Chen, the Shans, and, you know, Kachin, you know, whoever, they rose up against the British administration or the attempt to stop the British from establishing new administration not coordinated by any center. So what we are seeing is two the NUG and CRPH making formal and formalistic uh, statements and even arrangements 
And then there's an organic community-based resistance with or without NUG or CRPH. The people would still be fighting the military because that they realize that this may be their last chance. They're not going to let the military recreate a whole whole of administration. That's why they were attacking any civilians handpicked to lead community administrative units. But but then I think what makes me unhopeful has nothing to do with Burma or NUG or you know the uh, residues of ethnic or inter-ethnic distrust directed at the Burmese majority. Well, I mean, we've got we've got 70 years of lies that we have told the minorities, and you can't expect them to evaporate the, the minority to trust us overnight. But anyway, the problem is no longer in part, you know, domestic. In large part, is international. We are dealing with the interstate system. We're not dealing with the inter-people organizations outside government. We are dealing with the United Nations that treat states as a entity, yeah, sort of like a you know, reified nation without the people. You see, that is why if you if you look at the United Kingdom, I mean, Ireland doesn't have a, a Burmese embassy. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Burmese ambassador in London has a responsibility to deal with Ireland, Denmark, and a few other places. So, so even the United Kingdom that has been the most one of the most vocal opponents of the coup, comes up with this very intellectually and legally ambiguous position that we have to accept the Burmese ambassador. When the sitting Burmese ambassador expressed his loyalty to the democratic government, although he was himself a military intelligence colonel in the past, but his new loyalties or sympathies are with our Sun Suu and the democratically elected government. So he got evicted. Yeah, he got locked out of the embassy, and the British government could forcibly intervene that situation and say, we will recognize only the evicted Burmese ambassador who support our Sun Suu and the National for Democracy government. No, the British didn't do that. He said, well, we will make sure that the ambassador is safe. We will make sure that his living arrangements okay. He continued to live in the ambassador's place. But the symbol of sovereignty, the embassy, has been allowed by the British government to be taken over by the charge day affairs, you know, recognized or backed by the military. You see what I mean? This is just one country. If UK, yeah, that prides itself as a supporter of Burmese democratic movement and Suchi cannot act in a decisive way to show that it will back and recognize only the diplomats that support or that are part of NUG or that will support NUG. I think the question of how far NUG can go will be determined at the Credential Committee, at the United Nations General Assembly. You know, before the UNGA congregate, they engage in this like an annual ritual of screening the credentials of the representatives. But this time in the Burmese case, this is not going to be a ritualistic exercise. This is going to be a real battle. And on that committee, Russia, US, and China are on it. 
there are altogether nine of them. My fear is if that committee decides that the military, by virtue of the fact that it's sitting at the Burmese capital and still has a substantial territorial control, you know, the Russia, China, and their basically lackeys would argue we have to recognize the state, even if the government may be illegitimate. But this will not be unprecedented because like, we are looking at a situation like, let's just say, post-genocide Cambodia and the contest for representation at the United Nations. You know, Khmer Rouge was deposed in 1979, January, and they recamped along thai Kamal border. Yeah? And the United States and United Kingdom supported Khmer Rouge post-genocide. Yeah? After facts were known to everybody, they continued to seat Khmer Rouge with no control of Phnom Penh at the United Nations as a representative of Cambodian people. And the Chinese were pumping in upward of $1 billion to sustain Kamarut as an armed organization for a simple reason. If Phnom Penh was taken over by the Soviet allied Vietnam, which actually ended the genocide. So leaving aside the ideological issues, Russia and China can simply repeat what U.S. and U.K. did which was supported the genocidal regime at the UN. You see what I mean? So this is the repeat of this ugly history. And then there are only three scenarios, you know, in terms of representation. You, you talk about NUG. Unless it is recognized as a real state actor, you know, 100% political legitimacy, I would say that NUG is and should be the representative of the country. But the lawyers and diplomats, they operate in a different universe. They operate with their own state interest, and they will manipulate the international law and legal concepts. They will go for the least painful option. The one option is that they could say that neither NUG representative nor the military's appointed representative should be seated. That means that they could declare Burmese seat at the UN vacant until such a time as the country stabilizes and a clear winner emerges. You see, that's one possibility. And the other one is, you know, they would say, oh, we're going to continue accepting the current and sitting representative that supports the NUG. And, you know, the worst case scenario is that we will accept the military's representative. And that if that happens, I think that it's going to be a major propaganda blow to the NUG. Yeah. I mean, think about it. United States, for instance, Biden, with executive order, froze $1 billion assets that belonged to the state of Myanmar in the U.S. banks. He could easily unlock that money and say, this is the people's money. We recognize the NUG as a legitimate representative government of the people, we will allow the NUG to access that money. Yeah? If that happens, that NUG's financial capacity will be enormous. You know, you talk about armed struggle. Then they can buy arms. If the West is serious about NUG growing in power and influence and territorial control, I mean, 
forget the sanctions and, you know, turning off the tap of Total or Chevron. Just unlock that money, yeah? I mean, let the people fight their liberation struggle properly. You see what I mean? So that's why I don't have confidence in Western governments. They talk the talk of democracy. They talk the talk of supporting freedom movements. Unless doing so advances their strategic agenda in Burma, they will keep issuing statements. They will keep making mention about NUG and CRPH and people's aspirations. Nothing else. I feel like I'm back to square one. Remember that, you know, the conversation I had with senior state department official back in 2003-4. I mean, you've got friends in the country. I bet none of your friends today utter the word responsibility to protect, R2P. Nobody talks about it. There was a window of weeks where people were just like treating R2P, 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 right? And now I hear that the people's hope for any type of forceful intervention or support from outside is gone. And so I don't know. I am not hopeful. I mean, hopeful in theory, because what I have been most hopeful about is that this Generation Z saying, we reject Aung San Suu Kyi and, and all these racist policies. The, think about it. The first time in the history of parliaments in Burma since the British colonial time, yeah, Aung San Suu Kyi presided over a Muslim free parliament. And that was by choice. Yeah. I'm not Muslim, obviously, but I'm saying you cannot have that kind of leadership. And so the Generation Z, they distance themselves very self-consciously from what they call this old like racist NLB crowd, right? So they are actually the most progressive folks. They're the ones who issue statements and apologies to the Rohingya. Yeah? They're the ones who stand up for great victims, whatever their race or faith. And they want a different type of society. If you ask me what gives me hope, that is what gives me hope. If the country survives the current period, you know, it is not NUG. It is actually Generation Z. That is the foundation of a new world. A lot of the young people we have been speaking to, one guy we spoke to just recently, and he said very clearly that he had a lot of hope for NUG at the beginning, but he has lost that hope now. And what he actually said, and you know, these are the people on the ground who are fighting and joining the resistance. So I, I think their opinions matter far more than, you know, the West in many ways. But he said, you know, all they're doing, as far as he is concerned, is posting poetry on their blue ticked accounts, <laughs> which is to quote him exactly. And they just felt that they were losing hope with them because they were not communicating with them. It was like they feel like they want them to fight for them, but they've kind of just pushed them to the side and all their focus is on getting the West to see them as the legitimate government. But actually, they need the people of Myanmar to see them as the legitimate government far more than the West in many ways. Because even if they can get access to all that money, I mean, if you don't have the will of the people on the ground to support you, it's not really going to make a huge difference. So NUG... I think they lack a leader. They lack a face. You know, I mean, Dr. Sasa is the spokesperson, which is not quite the same thing. And it's like nobody knows who the NUG are. You know, they're just like these different people. No one knows who's making the decisions. 
I think out of principle and also out of what I saw as a strategic necessity, even before like Sasha approached me to help, you know, I was uh, tweeting, writing like a supportive uh, notes about CRPH and NUG. You know, for me, this is impersonal. I have my own feelings or anger or resentment, whatever. But that's besides the point because like this concerns the entire future of the country. Yeah. You know, like I was getting people to issue statements and to support all that. You know, I have uh, friends who are very close to different members of the NUG. NUG is trying to behave even, you know, with the nomenclature, ministers, and this and that. But that's why, like, when uh, Wendy something, Deputy Secretary of State from the U.S., uh, spoke with Zema Aum, she didn't use the word foreign minister, yeah? She said, like, representative of NUG. But Zema Aum's official title is a foreign minister, right? So it is rather telling how the United States government is carefully wording everything it says about NUG. And if it wants to push the NUG as a legitimate state actor representing the country, then they could simply call Zimao. I talked to the Burmese foreign minister, NUG foreign minister, Zimao. No, no, representative, right? And I think the problem is, I mean, for lack of a better word, I mean, we are in a revolution. It's very clear, socially, politically, in terms of violence. The people are in the revolutionary phase, or a large number. Many of them openly support it. But NUG is trying to act as the normal government. You see, a revolution requires a revolutionary leadership. And so there is a complete mismatch here. So I think you can't lead a revolution if you are trying to act like a state actor. And then you're part of the revolution. You've got to behave as revolutionaries. Yeah? And then that requires not just the political maneuvering and doing all the things that are strategically expedient, but you also have to have a, you know, revolutionary intellectuals, part of that group, charting, you know, like beyond issuing crowd-pleasing statements. You see what I mean? And so... They are criticized by some of the most progressive and student activists on the ground as a Facebook government. I mean, it is actually quite damning. You know, Zoom government, Facebook government, right? I mean, Zoom, I mean, we're on the Zoom. I <laughs> anyone get me on this too. And so, you know, Facebook is the same thing. And I, I don't know what to say. I think the problem is uh, there's a lot of fear and frustration among the population that want to see a successful, violent revolution, yeah? Washington Post, you know, New York Times, you know, these are the organizations that do not promote lightly violent uprising, you know what I mean? But their editorial boards, you know, cannot conceal their desire to see a proper, successful arms revolution. Because they realize that no one's going to help the Burmese. <laughs> yeah? So they need to fight. You know, it's like the Irish that you fought, right? And so, you know, we don't have Michael Collins. We don't have Mandela. And, you know, they're not even a united council of mutually respectful revolution. They're acting like, you know, sort of infantile politicians. Yeah? You know, settling all scores. And then on top of that, eh, some of the influential 
cabinet ministers, to use that term, should never have been appointed. You know, if, if you say we are moving away from the old NLG positions of rejecting Rohingya identity or calling them Bengali or like, you know, denying genocide, then why keep the um, cheerleaders and denialists from the genocide era? You see what I mean? Why do you think they've kept some of those people? Because they think they need their knowledge or they're afraid to no, lose their I mean, support? I, or? I, think, I think one is, you know, the very heavy influence of old Aung San Suu Kyi loyalists, put it that way. And if you look at NUG, if, you, if they move away from Aung San Suu Kyi and her policies and failed leadership, why keep her net picture? Why keep her name as the patron of NUG? You swear I me? Mean? That's just at the symbolic level. And then the other one is like, of course, I, you know, there is one medical doctor, Zoe So, and the doctors and nurses are at the forefront of the uh, uh, civil disobedience movement. And Zoe So is seen as basically the leading spokesperson for the CEN. So they keep him. And Zoe So known as like, you know, completely unethical professional among his colleagues, you know, known as an anti-Muslim racist. And then you've got, you know, social welfare minister, another doctor and medical professional, Wimya A. He was the guy who signed on to land confiscation of the land that Rohingyas fled from. You see what I mean? And then he was the guy who had been on record denying that the Burmese state had done anything wrong. And then you've got another person, a woman, who used to live in Edinburgh as a political refugee. He studied there, I think defense studies or something. Anyway, you know, she was on the record on Facebook calling Rohingya rats and mice. And then anyone who raised the issue against a genocide was like, you mind your business, we are clearing our house of mice and rats. That is the kind of like uh, people that are playing very, very influential roles in the NUG, in direct opposition to what it says it wants for Burma. Would you like allow the SS officers, after they surrender, to occupy a cabinet position in the post-Holocaust Germany? I mean, no. But why do we allow that within NUG? So there's so many ethical, strategic, and intellectual issues. Does there need to be a little bit of room for people to learn from their mistakes too? Because, I mean, it is a propaganda nation and people are victims of that too. I mean, I'm not excusing it, but it's the same with military. Like, I think a lot of people who come from military backgrounds are being, you know, cancelled. But, I mean, a lot of young people whose parents are in the military do not think like their parents and do not agree with things. So I, I just wonder if there needs to be, I mean, I get the people you're talking about, and some of them have not apologized. Some have apologized for their past comments. So some have yet to do that. But yeah, I guess there needs to be, um, I guess, a chance for people to, to change as well, to be given maybe. Well, I, I, I cannot agree more with you on this. I mean, people have the capacity to change, but then they've got to show that they have changed. <laughs> and you know, you see what I mean? You, we cannot assume that just simply because the old genocide cheerleaders join the NUG with a new vision that they have. I'm, uh, I, I'm not a religious person, you know, but 
the word is they have to repent. I think that for, for me, if they're a revolutionary group, they have to show they've got personal courage. They've got political courage. And if they realize that what they had done was wrong, then say that publicly. Say that, you know, I was wrong. I did not know any better. I, I bought into the military propaganda. Our own leadership, Aung San Suu Kyi, and also co-chair, ex-general Tenu, who was also commander in Rakhine State uh, in the late 50s. And they say no Rohingya. So, so we all listen to our leaders, right? So now, like, you know, the facts that uh, come into the open, we study the facts, and we realize that we were wrong. Therefore, we apologize. Simple. You see what I mean? You know, they, they talk to the media. They hold press conferences. They hold, you know, uh, Zoom meetings with, like, a different official. All they could do is, like, you know, come together, three or four of them, that have a bad reputation as having supported the genocide, and say, look, this is our collective statement among the four of us. But on the contrary, I mean, like, I don't know if you read some recent El Zero diplomat piece about how the old NLD elements that are most powerful were livid about even Sasa calling Rohingya our brothers and sisters. You see what I mean? This is no long ago. This is months after the coup. And so uh, they need to show if they have had a change of heart. So, I mean, uh, there are a lot of activists who took up arms, who are also part of opposition movement. They were army-bred. Actually, they used the fact, like I do, that, you know, we came from a military family extended or nucleus. And uh, we know this institution cannot be reformed, and therefore we take direct opposition against it. We condemn it, yeah? So, like, you know, there are men and women who grew up in army families, and they're part of the revolution. You know, they say so. They turn their weakness into a strength of, you know, education. So they know when they say, like, oh, we are from a military family, we are Buddhist, and this is wrong. This is what Buddhists are doing. Or this is what the military is doing. That gives them greater credibility. You know, like that also makes them more persuasive because they're not, you know, from outside criticizing. You see what I mean? And then so by the fact that they're not doing it, you know, it doesn't all go well, you know, for the NUG's future. Well, what's keeping them from saying, I am sorry? Simple. You know, if you acted in a way that is racist, you know, then no one's born racist or anti-racist. We were all taught to be this or that. And then, like, you know, we make our own mind as we get older and then we try to improve ourselves. And show signs of improvement. No, no, nothing's coming. And then the worst is, like, you know, people who come with fresh minds and open heart, they are attacked within the NUG. I mean, I'm not making this up. I mean, this is in writings. And Sasa himself told me he was attacked viciously. Like, you were willing to join with them and take a role. And do you know who who stopped or killed your short political career? Or what what went down? I, mean, I don't have a career with that. <laughs> I don't know, and I didn't ask uh, the details, because <laughs> for me it's immaterial. You know, I knew NUG was the floor. And I wasn't looking for a perfect organization. And also, like, you know, for the longest time, I stayed away, you know, like, despite the fact that I was, you know, supporting because, you know, I didn't want to be in a situation where 
you know, I will be sitting in the same meeting with like, of course, like, you know, I, I was just going to be an advisor, not in any senior position. But, but it doesn't matter well, what position. And all I wanted to do was support a few members who I thought, and I think still, are progressive and forward looking. And, and so the idea was, if you ask me, if, if I think ill of NUG, or I don't, I don't think ill of NUG, I, I think negatively of the old NLD old cards that are running. But NUG as an entity, as a, a revolutionary tool, is something I can still continue to support. I don't, I don't trash them in public. Also, it, it wasn't simply the internal NUG opposition. It was also the overwhelming NLD supporters that will never <laughs> accept or forgive me for, you know, calling Aung San Suu Kyi genocide. You know. <laughs> so I wasn't, I, I'm just being factual. And like, <laughs> so just, just a bit. <laughs> you come like I know you're you're controversial, but you actually come across as quite articulate, and what you're saying is all very reasonable. And anything I read of yours, but you do manage to rub people up the wrong way. Is that intentional? Like, do you or do you just speak from your heart without thinking, or are you one of these Twitter people who knows how to kind of rile people up? No, no, no. I think you're absolutely right. I have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, and it's not intentional. You know. What, the Burmese public is one thing, but the non-Burmese who support or get involved in or write about Burma, people with a voice, you know, and people who write and speak to the media, that have access to different policy circles, some of them I don't have time for, you know, polite discourse. So I just cannot storm on it. Uh, let me give you an example. You know, some of the people that have worked from Burma for, say, 20 years more now, I'm talking about foreigners. And uh, I've worked in essentially international activism and transnational solidarity is something that I offer and I seek. I get involved in supporting Palestinian, you know, not, not, not simply as a Twitter person, you know, I would confront the uh, exit uh, heads of Israeli security intelligence or whatnot, you know, in private sectors where I would meet them fundraisers and whatnot. And there was not a single Palestinian in the room. I would raise the issue of Palestinian rights because there was nobody who would raise this issue. And that I get myself disinvited from places or spaces of power because I would not hold back. And so, you know, I speak straight, but there are also times that I speak with anger. And, you know, it will be dishonest to say that I'm not angry. Oh, I have not been angry at what's happening in my country to the people there or the policies that are pursued. And I, I say that, I treat it, I say it But some of the behavior of influential Burma advocates, NGOs or think tanks, writers, whatever, I know that personally and intimately. Some of them are old friends, you know, close collaborators on different political issues, but when I expect better, you know, in terms of integrity, honesty, from them, and I hold myself to a very high standard of ethics, and as a human, I hold myself to, you know, this, basically I was raised Buddhist in a decent family, I got punished as a child, I was punished harsh, more harshly for lying than doing something 
things that my parents did not want me to do. So the one thing I cannot stand is dishonest, whether it is, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi or Tham Yenu or someone else or like the foreigner. When I see like a you know, completely dishonest and unprincipled behavior, that triggers something in me and I don't hold back. And that is against my self-interest. But I'm not going to change it because I'm not going to deny who I am and I'm not going to act less than what I think I am capable of. And then people I consider friends or colleagues, if they show shady behavior, I'm going to attack you know. And so that, obviously, that is not tactful. That is not strategic. And so I accept the consequences. But you know, I, I hold on to my own ethical standards and principles. But at the same time, I'm also a human. You know, I don't point fingers at others and don't see my own flaws. But yeah, I mean, like, you know, nobody knows me better than I. I have my own flaws. I have my own shortcomings. You know, I, I've done things I'm not proud uh, in my life. I'm 58, and it's uh, you know, it's per for the course as a human, as an activist, and then, you know, the best that one can do is live by one's own principles. And in terms of controversy, I think I don't seek out to stare things up or just to, you know, to draw attention to what I have to say or what I'm doing. I speak things perhaps in a way that is less strategic than I should have been, but I speak things Nobody is prepared to speak. And, you know, I have a voice. Uh, I'm going to use it, you know, for good reason and for the right ethical purposes. I mean, think about it. When the whole society was up and up against the Rohingya, I mean, I say this is genocide. And I, I wasn't like being hyperbolistic. And I was studying and my wife was studying. Then no NGOs were prepared to say, you know, 45 rights or whatnot. You know, I had so many heated conversations with some of the, the directors. I said, why, why do you not call this genocide? I said, oh, no, we're too small. If we call it genocide, there will be a lot of backlash against us. We can't stand the storm. And then there are also like Rohingyas. Who knew this was genocide? They were using the words like discrimination and that kind of thing. I said, well, why do you not call it genocide, genocide? It's your people. And uh, if you don't speak for your own people, who's going to speak? Speak truthfully. So that, oh, no, no, no. You know, my parents live in the country. If I say genocide, I can't see them and they don't want to come out. And then, like, these people get uh, paraded around the world as heroes or heroines. <laughs> it rides me up. I don't know about, like, uh, me riding other people up. But what I see riles me up, you know, and... uh I said, like, you know, if you're not prepared to speak truthfully, don't speak for your people. You are usurping the space for others who are prepared to speak for your people truthfully. And I might use a sample. We are fighting against a regime that is based on lies and propagandism, you know, the total absence of ethics and morals and compassion. You know, why, why behave like that? Every time we behave dishonestly, we are like the system. And we say we are fighting again. I'm not part of it. I don't have political ambitions. I don't, you know, I miss the food. I miss the hair. I miss the, you know, but when I returned to Burma today, 
you know, I went there like you know, back in 2005 for four or five days to visit my father's grave. And it was changed society. It wasn't the city I grew up. You know, when I came back to the UK, I cried like a baby. You know, because you know, that was the worst law. I mean, the world completely lost. And so I do things irrespective of my own self-interest. You know, mm-hmm. I only have one life, and you know, when I close my eyes, <laughs> I I would close my eyes and say, you know, I was a good guy. You know, I was my presence in the world is is positive, and my children, and my my girls are proud of me, and my family are proud of me. I am proud of what I've done. I haven't succeeded anything major, substantial. Uh, you know, I've made my own small contributions in good faith and with complete honesty. I mean, I cannot ask for more from my life. When we think about Myanmar's future, and I know you had said previously when the coup happened that there was a small bit of you or maybe a large part that felt kind of vindicated, not in a good way, but like you have been trying to warn people of this military for so long. And in the past, like, you know, you were talking about what was happening in Rakhine long before it was making international news. You were talking about Aung San Suu Kyi maybe not being the hope or the person that everyone thought she was long before that got into the mainstream media. And again, the military and that they were not an organization that could ever be reformed. So you've been saying these things for a long time. And each of them has kind of come to fruition and you've been proved, I guess, correct in, in what you saw. So as a prophet now, what, what's the future that we should be listening from you now? No, like if we're to say, like, what do you see? I don't see myself. Actually, you know, like some of the things I said were based on facts like genocide or my own intimate assessment. And, you know, look, I mean, with respect to our society, you know, when I left the country, I had three pictures in my in my wallet. I mean, I, we didn't really have a wallet in Burma in those days, before 1988. Yeah? But before the country opened up, the idea of wallet did not exist. <laughs> we had, uh, you know, like little pockets and whatnot. So I, I had three small pictures. One was this behind the border. It was a war loot uh, from uh, 1785. You know, there's a great Buddha image covered with, like, you know, gold. On the back of that picture was a, a few Buddhist prayers that my father thought could protect me from all kinds of crap. And then, you know, my family picture. And then a, a picture of, you know, Aung San family, a black and white, a small one. Yeah? Because of, I grew up hearing about her father from my great uncle, who was his uh, classmate and, you know, next door neighbor in Rangoon uh, at the university. And so, you know, I always held that family in the highest regard because, I, you know, I, I look at the, the Aung San family as uncorrupted, uncorruptible, you know, like the no self-aggrandizers and whatnot. And so that was the extent of my reverence for Aung San and the name and the family. So I studied, uh, I supported and at the same time studied the leadership for 15 years, every single videotape speech, you know, I study, I had copies. But when I arrived at the conclusion that she was not the leader that I thought she was, which was a principal, compassionate, strategic, smart, and none of that. And I said, and, you know, that was against the current, I mean, not just the Burmese currents in the country, but international opinion. 
The world thought she could walk on water. She could do no wrong. She was dining and wining with like empires and empresses, including the queen here. And I said those things because of the strength of my conviction that um, I, I studied this subject and I arrived at the conclusion. And when I Facebooked about the coup, you know, a year before the coup, it wasn't that I knew that you know, this could happen. I thought that the military had the best of all worlds and they would not rock the boat because they backed our son Suchi. And through her, they backed Western investors. And he was the best scheme that they could ever have. Yeah? She was defending the military in every possible way, you know, out of a mix of logic and sentiment, you know, affections, you know, sort of some kind of unfounded hope that this institution will reform, it is reformable. She was opening the doors for them as centers or West Point or defense ministries around the world. Yeah? And then governments around the world use her name. We have cleared this with Aung San Suu Kyi, meaning collaboration with the Burmese military. They could not ask for better nation-building partner, despite her other failures, genocide, racism, and all. She was the best ever. All of this happened, and I was so angry. I was so angry because she was going along on the path that would not end up in a democratic state. So they got her wrapped around the finger, and I was angry at her. I was angry at the military leaders, some of whom I knew, and I was angry at the NLD, and I was angry at the international policy analysts for basically embracing the mirage of democratization as a transition. So that was why I said, I wish there was a coup that we could fuck. And so, when that happened, of course, I'm helpless and, and I'm powerless to affect the process. And I kind of felt sorry. When the coup was taking place in Burma, like four in the morning, they were rounding up people. It was like 10, 30, 11 at night, you know, in London or in the UK. My friends and I, we were chatting because we were starting to get information through Messenger and signals and say, like, you know, that the coup's taking place. <laughs> so I pulled out a bottle of red wine and poured myself a glass and took this stupid mug of myself and then, like, posted it on Facebook. <laughs> I said, I'm treat you know, I'm toasting to the coup because we're going to have a revolution. And then we do have a revolution now, but we're not getting anywhere positive. I mean, <laughs> the sad thing is that I, I can't, I can't do anything. You know, other than keep screaming and rubbing people around me. Yeah, like, I mean, I don't think you take any pleasure in it. Like, oh, no, it's I, painful. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody wants to be condemned. Everybody mm. wants to be, you know, applauded. <laughs> and everybody wants to be loved. It's just a universal human feeling. Uh, it was really painful. And my wife was so pained because <laughs> she, she is just like really nice British uh, English woman. <laughs> She's not from this kind of violent, vile environment 
And, you know, I'm used to it. <laughs> I've been attacked for like 25, 20 years <laughs> from so many angles. And so, but even then, of course, it is painful when people say shit about you. Yeah, like, I mean, it's got to hurt a little bit, you know, as much as maybe your bravado or, you know. But, I mean, it is changing, too, because now so many more people are coming to your way of thinking and there's got to be positivities in that, doesn't there? I mean... Yeah, I mean, like, you know, for the longest time, every single actor in Burmese politics, you know, military or some ethnic minorities or... NLD supporter, Suchi supporter, international advocates, whatnot, just about every actor has essentially, you know, attacked me publicly. So I, I always keep a, a very modest rule. I don't say that what I say is going to influence public opinion. So I specifically tell myself to lower my expectations. And I say, if I share, you know, an insight or an idea that is progressive and decent and change the mind of, let's say, five young Burmese, that's worth it. And so I don't seek like thousands of followers. You know, I'm happy if thousands of people like my page or, or retweet or whatever. It happens occasionally. But my goal is very modest. If a few members of Generation Z have an aha moment, you know, when they hear me say something or when they read something I write in Burmese or English, I think that's satisfactory. Because, I mean, you, you are both educators. If you turn a mind on with something positive, progressive, that is a lasting impact. Of course, like, it's not world changing. And so, I mean, my view is, I was just the one guy, you know, from the streets of Mandalay following around what we call FIT. Uh, that's the foreign individual travels, backpackers. That they are approachable as opposed to Porsche, um, tourists that come on, you know, fancy package tours. So, you know, that a few people saw potential in me and, you know, they put their financial resources, connections, whatnot in my service or like to help. And, you know, I've been doing things, you know, generally positive for the last 30 years, even as a student. And so, you know, if I influence a few people intellectually and ideologically, I mean, they will do what I do today with their lives. And so probably I, I won't know what they're doing. And I probably will not live to see how well they do. But knowing that a few people become, quote unquote, Enlightened. Uh, that gives me like greater satisfaction. I don't get a penny out of it, but as an educator, as a former teacher or whatever, that's the greatest satisfaction. So that compensates for volumes of like condemnations and attacks. But, but it also makes me a better Buddhist because I meditate on my own rage. When you're attacked, <laughs> the feeling is great. You want to fight back. And I do fight, but, you know, at the end of the day, I am a Buddhist through and through, not in a religious sense. You know, I, I meditate on my feelings. I meditate on the state of Burma. So I'm not affected emotionally by what I know is happening in the country. People dropping dead, people not having enough to eat, people running away, tortured to death. 
I can't change that, and I'm not going to let that to destroy me, you know, make me destroy. But, you know, look, I actually moved a handful of activists in the country, their families, to safety. So these are things I don't talk about. I don't need to take credit. I don't need to say who they are. But I make you know, a small contribution beyond ideas and wild statements. I mean, I think me and Suzanne were coming from the exact same pages in that we just wanted to make some kind of small contribution. I mean, we lived there for a very short amount of time, but the way that things have changed since this coup is just, it started off almost kind of, you were just so proud of that pop banging and how everyone was uniting together. And then you've got this progression of increasing violence, increasing exposure of all the atrocities that have always been going on but you know about it immediately, all the time. And this this pandemic, this wave, it, it's just so hard to comprehend how you can have a humanitarian crisis be escalated even further by the people that are, are in control of your country. And listening to you guys talk about the future for the uh, NUG and, and all that, and I'm like, I see all that, I understand all that, but right now I'm so frustrated that there's not more I can do, that there's not more action that the international community, that we can't help the people, regardless of the politics, more right now. And it is just any 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 encouragement people can give, any support people can give, like you're saying, in terms of getting people to think differently, is everyone just has to try and do what they can, I guess. Yeah, I mean, like, I've been doing this for almost 33 years since I was, you know, 25. We can't play golf, you know, and uh, the most we can do is, you know, we do our best and, uh, you know, we will always come short. Well, we do always come short of what is needed to be done. But I think the the problem is that individuals don't do their best, not just Burma. I mean, the whole world went best. I mean, I've got a daughter which just turned 22, Generation Z in California their generation is finally changed. And they're not talking about nationalism. They're talking about when we're in a deep trouble as far as, you know, the, the ecological system. And uh, I don't know, if if 50 million Burmese discharge their own individual responsibilities, we wouldn't be in this situation. I mean, like, it, it's like a compound interest that the, the society is paid Generations after generations fail for whatever reason to build, you know, the national community that can call itself human. And so we end up with that extremely inhumane and inhuman system and, uh, you know, these monstrous generals. You know, they're basically weaponizing access to oxygen. I mean, that's why, like, you know, I started saying, you know, you could weaponize access to food, wipe out the entire population. Famines, most of the famines are, you know, product of policy, like Irish famine, Bengal famine, you know, whatever the motives. When you weaponize food, I mean, access to grain, you know, food is no longer a food, food. And that's why humanitarian assistance is being weaponized. Who has access to it? Now the military is weaponizing access to oxygen. You either support us or you will not get oxygen. And I, I think that actually like uh, raises the issue of genocidal intent on the part of the military. 
because so we are looking at population. Now, they're not denying individuals, Oxford. They're denying certain demographic groups access to oxygen. If you do not come to military hospital, or if you are not supporting us, then you are with the enemy. The enemy is the democratic opposition. And so, therefore, that population is dispensable, and that we will make sure they are dispensable. But we don't even have to waste our bullets and, you know, get them bad reputation, just deny them access to oxygen. Of course, like here, it's not just oxygen, but medical treatment and assistance from international community. And they could say, we will cooperate with anyone, including NUG and NUG supporters from around the world. We will set up COVID quarantine centers. We will allow them in. So something like COVID ceasefire, pandemic ceasefire. <laughs> okay, this is Christmas or Ramadan. Let's stop. You know, let's have a good meal. And they're like, well, we'll fight. Get like now that kind of stuff. They're not doing it. And so I think it is. It is heart wrenching. But at the same time, you know, uh, I post pictures of the uh, flowers on my Facebook. I post a certain historical sites that I see because life has to go on. I mean. It, Burma is my emotional, psychological reality. But I also have an immediate physical reality living in, you know, British countryside. So I can't suspend my life. And I can't allow, and I will not allow, the stories of Burma to create mental health problems for me. I have a Buddhist background, so I rely on that. Even, even my English part is more effective than me. Because she, you know, she, she fought in refugee camps in Korean State, you know, lived there in the camp for a year or two. And she has a lot of friends and stuff. And so, you know, I, I meditate on, on the shit that's happening. The best we can do is we do what we can. That's all. And beyond that, it's, um, beyond our control. You know, if, if things are happening that are beyond your control, you know, if you allow yourself to, you know, to make destroy, you lost doubly. You lost your mental health. You lost the reality. So, in reality, we can control. But we can control the state of our mind. And that's, that's how I do it. And a few neighbors who are interested, I teach them Buddhist meditation. So by the mere fact that I'm from Burma, so I, I come with automatic uh, credibility. <laughs> It's been really great talking to you, Mangzarni. I feel like I feel like it's really good to kind of have spoken to you and, and get your own sense rather than read the sensational headlines about you and the the things people say. Um, I think if people read your work and they look at the years you've dedicated to trying to help the people of Myanmar, I think it's kind of unquestionable your motives. Like I think it's clear to see that you only have one goal, and that is to to help help Myanmar. And that's what it seems. And I understand the anger you're talking about. You know, a lot of people have that and, and carry that. And I think it's important what you're just saying there about having to live your life as well, because there's so many people, you know, the Myanmar diaspora all around the world that are kind of caught in this moment, you know, with what's happening. And so many more pe- people have been politicized this time that have never been before. And they're trying to carry the weight of what's happening back in Myanmar. And then that need to kind of life needs to keep going. And it's 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 hard to do, but it's been really, really great talking to you, really interesting. Absolute pleasure to meet you today. Thank you so much for your time. I feel like I've learned a lot as well, so thank you. Yeah, thanks for t- talking for this one.
Okay. Okay. Thank you yeah, so much, Mangani. Thank you for listening to RNR Podcast. You can follow us on all major social media platforms. It's at RNR Podcast, spelled A H N A H. Please like, follow, and subscribe. Myanmar remains in our hearts and thoughts. We have not forgotten you. Let's keep the conversation going.